Welcome to the Exploress, the Halloween edition. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. This spooky season bonus comes courtesy of my patrons. I crafted this episode for them back in 2020, and I love it so much that this year I'm sharing it with you. So let's jump a little bit ahead of the Tudor era and across the pond to the cutthroat royal court of France. Get ready for murder, mayhem, and some poisonous ambitions. Just a heads up, this episode travels down some pretty dark paths, so you might want to listen on your own before sharing it with any small exploresses. Now, put on your fanciest gown, turn off the lights, and grab a big glass of wine. Just make sure no one's put anything in it. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest lady president, Cynthia. My boss ladies, Dawn, Amy, Annabelle, Elizabeth M., Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Monique, Michelle, Natalie, Nuria, Rebecca, Patricia, Sarah, and Tonya. My adventuresses, Anna, Carlos, Deborah, Helena, Iris, Emily, the two Jessicas, Joe Marie, Kelly, Phil, Stephanie, and Terry. My warrior queens, Ika, Lori, Alexis, June, Neve, and Sloane, and Kate. My imperial empresses, Katie, Bridget, Samara, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, and my lady pharaohs, the excellent Laura and the queenly Courtney's. Patrons play a huge role in keeping this show going. For just a couple of bucks a month, they support an independent creator, and they get access to exclusive bonus episodes just like this one, and the one I'm about to share about an Elizabethan lady pirate. To find out more about it, just go to my website. It's a stifling day in Paris, 1676. A woman is being led down a cobbled street. She's a small thing, almost dainty, hands bound and feet bare. One might almost feel sorry for her seeing her led to her death. But the crowd is a seething mass of malice. They sneer at her, spit at her feet like a curse. She poisoned her father and brothers, they whisper, and that's true. She honed her poisons by going to hospitals, feeding her concoctions to the sick and the poor. Untrue, but still. A noose dangles limply around her neck. She's going to be beheaded, not hung. But this is meant as a symbol and a reminder. Here walks a sorceress who committed heinous crimes. Before the sentencing, they tortured the Marquis de Brinvilliers. They bent her over a wheel, put a funnel in her mouth, and poured water down her throat ringing out confessions between each painful gasp. She made it known that she wasn't the only poisoner in Paris. And now, just before death, she says, Out of so many guilty people, must I be the only one put to death? Just another fanciful rumor, but it speaks to sinister truths. 
And the Marquis isn't just some hedge witch making poisons in her basement. The Marquis de Brunvilliers was a high-born lady, a moneyed and well-connected lady. Her friendships reach all the way into the king's glittering court. If a woman of such status can poison her family, then surely no one is above suspicion. There might be other sorceresses hiding in fancy clothes and in plain sight. Paris police chief Nicolas de la Reine feels sure of it. Yes, beneath the shining waters of his city, dark dangers lurk, unseen below the surface. Creatures he must find a way to catch. Meanwhile, in a shadow-filled garden, a woman in a blood-red cape swirls her wine. It is worrying this Brinvilliers' business. Suspicions about dark magic have been raised, and no sorceress is more famous in this city than La Voisin. But her clientele are the rich and influential. Surely no one will out her. If she goes down, they all go. Up at the Louvre, the king's official mistress powders her cheeks. Francois Athenais de Rochessoir, Marquis de Montespan, has been Louis XIV's lover for almost a decade, giving him several children, reveling in his rapt attention, whispering always in his ear. She's married to another man, but no matter. It's not like he can deny his king what he wants. She drips in jewels and has 20 sumptuous rooms, where the queen has only 11. There have been many rivals for the Sun King's affections, but none have been able to best her. In this viper's nest of games and intrigue, she has won every hand she's played. This is the year that a courtier will say that Athenais has never looked better, and that the court has never been so agreeable. But Athenais can never rest easy. To lose the king's love would be to lose everything she has worked for, and she is not as young as she was. She picks up the small vial her old friend La Voisin gave her, dark with what she suspects is old blood, though she didn't ask. Such charms have worked before. They are sure to keep working. And there is no price she wouldn't pay for greatness, not even if that payment is in blood. Athenais first meets her man, King Louis XIV, in 1667. He was still with his first mistress then, Louise de la Vallier. She had just given birth to his daughter, and she was feeling poorly, so she invited the 26-year-old Athenais to the Hotel Briand to help entertain her lover. She then became one of the queen's ladies, and before long, she was spending an awful lot of time in her room, quite near the king's, catching up on her beauty sleep. Uh-huh. Something tells me that's not all she was catching. Louise's star fell, Athenais's star rose, and as per usual, the queen had to zip her lips and deal with it. In July of 1668, the great royal entertainment at Versailles was unofficially held in Athenais's honor. It's only the second party ever thrown at Versailles, and Louis spares no extravagance. He spends 117,000 livres, a third of the budget for Versailles for that year, on this one-day Baroque fairy tale. Imagine the king unveiling his latest innovation, the Dragon Fountain, with its water jet spewing up to 27 meters, tea in the Star Grove, bursting with sumptuous buffets, a play put on by Moliere, illuminated by 32 crystal lamps, 
another banquet, a lavish fireworks display. Athenais swirls in her gown, taking it all in, whispering witticisms in the king's ear all the while. The most powerful man in her world, and her world is all that matters. Louis XIV has been the king of France since the age of four. He's in his 20s now, ruling over a period of unprecedented prosperity. He's called the Sun King for a reason. He centralized monarchal power in France, turning his country into a leading light in Europe, a place rich in dazzling finery, innovation, and art. He is the sun around which all of France's most ambitious cluster, desperate to bask in a bit of his light. He lives in many fine palaces, from the Tuileries Palace to the Louvre, but his real passion project is Versailles. Starting in 1661, he transformed it from a relatively small hunting lodge into one of the most magnificent palaces in the Western world. Though he won't move his government and court here until 1682, he spends as much of his time there as possible, and that means so does his court. This is where Athenais spends most of her time. Life in Versailles is grand and opulent, but in an era before reliable plumbing, it's also host to a surprising amount of human waste. These huge palaces don't exactly give one an easy place to take care of business. One man wrote that he discovered behind the staircases at the Louvre were masses of excrement. One smells a thousand unbearable stenches caused by calls of nature. In 1702, a duchess will complain about men not caring much about what golden pillar they might take their golden shower on. The people stationed in the galleries in front of your room piss in all the corners, she wrote. It is impossible to leave one's room without seeing someone pissing. It doesn't help that the king's palaces are always mobbed with courtiers, making it impossible to discreetly and properly clean. So now you know that Versailles in its heyday probably smells like heavy perfume, flowers, and... <laughs> feces? Mmm... In a country with no central government, the road to power is solely through the king. He grants land and titles as he pleases, and there are only so many positions and honors to go around. So those with aspirations must keep close to him always, following him from palace to palace, vying for his attention and affections. But catching the king's eye isn't an easy feat. At Versailles, you might have anywhere from 3,000 to 10,000 people there day by day. Many are nobility, alert to every opportunity to get into Louis' good graces. If they are constant and stick to the never-ending rules of stifling etiquette, they might succeed. But there are so many rules. Who can address whom and when? How to move your hands? Even what kind of chair you're allowed to sit in? There's a kind of folding stool that the king sometimes lets his favorite lady sit in in his presence, and it's caused several ladies to come to actual blows. And you'll never find the king alone. Only his most cherished servants and friends get to go to his getting-up ceremonies and breakfast ceremonies. He even has a crowd to watch him wash. This court is decadent, sophisticated, arrogant, assured. But they are also jealous, covetous, competitive, often bored, and always hungry. For position, influence, control. Sometimes ravenously so. In this cutthroat world of scandal, games, and intrigues, people have little to do but suck up and scheme, and they do it assiduously. Even those who hate the toxic court can't seem to stay away. 
Bishop Bousway called it an enchanted brew which intoxicates the most sober, and the majority of those who have tasted it cannot savor anything else. In this shining world, no position is more coveted than that of maîtresse en titre, the royal mistress. This semi-official title has been around since the 14th century and isn't just about sex. The royal mistress is meant to keep the king's amorous company, sure, but he's most likely got other women to help satisfy him in that department. Louis, it seems, has an amorous and oft-wandering eye. This mistress is chief amongst them, though, the king's companion not just between the sheets, but for parties and meetings. Someone to ease his troubles and talk about his day, someone he loves. Because we all know his actual wife is no good for that. Athanase has an incredible amount of power and influence. She is the brightest jewel of them all. And for a woman, there is no more powerful place to be than the king's mistress, whispering sweet suggestions in his ear. One of the most famous official mistresses, Madame de Pompadour, will only sleep with the next king, Louis XV, for the first several years of their relationship. After that, she will serve as one of his chief advisors. Men go to her while she puts on her makeup and ask for help with political matters. Athanase, a lover of gambling and with a passionate wit, holds those keys for years. She's smart, charming, and alluring, with a sense of humor that can be a little cutting. One woman said, One was never bored with her. Another courtier said, It was enchanting to hear her. She has to be enchanting to hold the king's attention. Louis, it seems, has the sexual appetite of a young stallion on Viagra. He'll have scores of children with different mistresses, but so long as it's just sex with other women, she can handle it. But the other ladies at court are forever scheming, and they aren't afraid to tear each other down. When a coveted position within a new royal household opens up, one observer wrote that, All the ladies of suitable rank and favor were actively canvassing for positions, often to one another's detriment. Anonymous letters flew about like flies. It's 1678, two years after the Marquis de Brinvilliers' beheading. Athanase has just given birth to her ninth child, her seventh with the king. She has taken pains to bounce back and keep her beauty after each birth, but this time it isn't easy, and those at court are quick to note it. One man, upon seeing her alight from her carriage, wrote that her calf was almost as big around as his waist. Nice. If ever Athanase was vulnerable, this is the moment. Enter Mademoiselle Marie Angelique de Scorae, the king's sister-in-law's newest lady-in-waiting. She will later be known as Mademoiselle de Fontange. Born to an impoverished duke, she is incredibly beautiful, which is why her family take great pains to get her into the king's eyeline. Young, blonde, and exquisite, one courtier said she has a form, a daring, an air to astonish and charm even that gallant and sophisticated court. By the following year, the king has taken her to bed. Athanase is bereft, though she reassures herself that the king will tire of his new toy eventually. After all, as one writer put it, the new girl is beautiful as an angel and stupid as a basket. But still, Louis seems besotted. He dotes on his new favorite, getting clothes made to match hers. He doesn't seem to fret when Athanase storms off back to Paris, making a great show of her displeasure. 
Though he tries to hide his budding love for Fontage in public, the king has a suite of rooms built for her at Saint Germain, connected to his rooms by a secret staircase. No one knows about it, until Athanase's two pet baby bears, yes, you heard me, find the door open, wander in, and destroy the apartment as if to avenge their mistress's honor. Always the gambler, Athanase starts to throw money down at the tables in earnest, losing millions of livres, which doesn't exactly help her case. And then Louis makes the new girl a duchess, something he's never done for Athanase. And he gives her 80,000 livres in allowance. This simply cannot stand. Athanase will not have it. She would rather see her lover dead, she decides, than with some other woman. Lavoisin will know just what to do. Born Catherine de Chaise around 1640, the woman who will become known as Lavoisin married a man named Antoine, a jewelry shop owner. When his businesses failed, Catherine decided to take her growing family's fortunes into her own hands. She had skills that she felt sure she could turn into an income, some medical knowledge which she used to work as a midwife, practicing both births and abortions. And though the origins of her career in witchcraft are shady, she also grows a reputation for her fortune-telling. To further her craft, she studies medicine and physiology, learning how to read people's body language, their faces, their hands. She can look into the lines of you and see your future, but she can also help you shape that future to your liking. It isn't blasphemous, she assures her clients. Her talents were gifted to her by God himself when she was only nine years old. This is a world in which the king has a keen interest in science, but where religion still has a very central place in people's lives. In such a world, the occult is seen as a powerful force, and potentially a dangerous one. But at this point, most take a lax attitude to such entertainments. Even the king himself allows diviners and fortune-tellers at court sometimes, mostly because he's a man of science and doesn't take it seriously. Surely it's all just a titillating diversion. Surely no one is putting magical powders in the Sun King's bowl of nuts. At some point, a priest calls Lavoisin's divination practices into question. Is she really reading people's fortunes, or is she deceiving her clients for personal gain? The intelligent Catherine stands in front of a bunch of professors from the Sorbonne, explaining how her gifts work so convincingly that they believe her, saved by her skill in rhetoric more than anything. From there, she worked hard to build an aura around herself, part mystery, part sorcery, part seductive power. The kind of power that lures in the leading lights of Louis' court. They all want an edge, and they aren't above turning to the magical to get it. Some want to always win their bets at the card tables, while others aspire to political greatness. One courtier buys himself charms to make him impervious to sword wounds. Others buy concoctions meant to cause others harm. Shirts soaked in arsenic, or enemas filled with mercuric chloride. But more and more of her clients, it seems, are wealthy women. They come to her, marquises, comtesses, duchesses, wanting something that might kill a husband or a rival, or ensure that a lover will never look at anyone else. A lover, perhaps, like the King of France? Lavoisin can see what her clients truly want, so she dives ever further into the making of charms, amulets, and what's called inheritance powders. 
It seems that she believes strongly in the powders of things like urine and period blood when it comes to making love potions. When one woman comes to her seeking something to inspire a man's affection, Lavoisin asks her to bring in some of the man's urine and shells from the eggs he ate for breakfast. How much do you want to bet that he'll be eating those things again by dinner? The ingredients for these concoctions read like an outtake from Hocus Pocus. Desiccated toad, the teeth of moles, the fingertips of a hanged man, Spanish fly, iron filings, human blood, the remains of mummies, tasty. And then she takes her final step into the shadows, adding the infamous black mass to her repertoire. She lies down, her body serving as a living altar for spirits to act on. There are stories of babies being killed during these rituals, their blood spilled onto the living altar and captured in vials for use in potions. Lavoisin throws lavish, much-coveted parties in her courtyard garden for her clients. She invests in her image, spending 1,500 livres on a crimson velvet robe threaded all over with beautiful golden eagles. This enterprising divineress is flying high, making a new name for herself and a powerful one. But there are those who seek to tear women like her down. In 1677, police chief Nicolas de la Renie had begun his hunt for the magical underworld he felt sure lay under Paris's surface. That's how he came upon 36-year-old divineress and fortune teller Magdalene de la Grange. She wrote to a prominent marquis from her prison cell, where she awaited trial, saying that she had important information about a plot against the king. So Louis ordered her taken to the Bastille, where she could be questioned by la Renie. She gives few concrete details, but enough to make it clear how much sorcery is being practiced in Paris. He follows the thread through his city's darkest alleys and its secretest dens. It's not just a thread, he realizes, but a web. The more he tugs, the more threads appear before him. By 1679, a commission is created to interrogate those arrested. They hold their sessions at the arsenal, lit by torches, in what is called the Burning Chamber. These sessions often include torture, which prompt new names, new allegations. Because we should definitely take as gospel things people say after you've tied them to the rack. One by one, these men, and mostly women, are condemned to die for their dark practices. Legs are crushed, others are hung, yet others burned alive like the witches they are said to be. Eventually, Marie Bosset is arrested. She is Lavoisin's chief rival. You can guess what happens next. Lavoisin is arrested when she's coming out of church, and the men who arrest her want answers. She is questioned and tortured many times for months on end. With each successive questioning, she reveals more information. And then she starts dropping prominent names. To the king's dismay, several women are arrested with ties to the royal court. La Reynie promises the king that no one, no matter how high-born, will escape his persecution and pursuit of justice. As the affair of the poisons unfolds, it comes to the fore that several women used magical means to try and poison the king's first mistress, Louise. It seems that magic has been lurking in the shadows of Versailles, even under all that glitter, for many, many years. La Voisin is executed in 1680. It's the same year that a once-dazzling fontage seems to take a strange turn. 
She's grown puffy and ill, and ever since her recent miscarriage, she seems to forever be seeping blood from between her legs. No one can cure her. The king is most certainly turned off by her. And then, as the affair continues to heat up, another witness comes forward. Her name is Marguerite, Lavoisin's daughter. And she drops a shocking bombshell. That before she died, Lavoisin was long in Athenais de Montespan's employ. And she may be the reason for Fontage's decline. It's intimated that the king's longtime mistress first went to the divineress in 1667, when they did their first black mass together. That's how Athenais managed to ensnare the king's obsession. For years, they say, she's gone to the woman for charms every time the king's love was in question. She's sprinkled potions in his food, along with aphrodisiacs to speed their efficacy. In her pursuit of favor, she was willing to try anything. A priest was brought in to do an amatory mass to control the king's mind and heart for Athenais, during which, it is claimed, a baby was killed, its blood spread on some communion crackers for later. And then, when the king elevated Fontange above her, she decided she'd had enough. She went to Lavoisin, offering her 10,000 écus to help her kill both the mistress and the king. The plan was for Lavoisin to take a poison petition to Louis, hoping that handing it over would make him sicken and die from the fumes. This seems pretty unlikely. How is a poisoner supposed to concoct such a thing without it killing her before she can use it? But, it said, she wasn't able to get close enough to him to enact the plan, and so the attempt was thwarted. Fontange they planned to poison more slowly. By the time she finally died, it would be assumed that she died of grief over Louis. How much of this is truth, and how much a reputation-slandering lie? La Reynie doesn't know, and the king is horrified. As would you be if you found out your lady companion had been secretly feeding you bat's blood and semen. Tortured by questions, certain of nothing, he continues to visit with Athenais. For months, she has no idea whatever that she's being investigated for poisoning and black magic. But after all that tossing and turning, Louis comes to one simple conclusion. If his lover is exposed for such practices, he'll become the laughingstock of Europe. And so he has all allegations of Athenais swept away, burned and buried. We don't know if it's because he believes them and wants them hidden to protect himself, or if he thinks they're all made up to discredit her. But with Fontange in a sorry state, the mood at court is paranoid. Almost no one trusted his friends anymore, Primi Vicanti reported of the court. As soon as someone fell ill from having eaten too much, he believed he had been poisoned. In 1681, Mademoiselle Fontage finally dies of her ailments. She is only 19. Later, whispers will circulate that Athenais is the one who killed her. Louis might be worried about that too, because he declares he doesn't want an autopsy performed. Her family disagrees and gets one done anyway. They find no evidence of poison in her stomach only lungs filled with pus. Modern evidence suggests that she might have had some placenta left inside her from the birth, which caused an infection. Not a pleasant way to spend your final days. In the course of the Affair of the Poisons, more women are arrested and questioned, some of them held on only the loosest of charges and evidence for years and years. The last head to roll over it won't be until 1724. 
Athenaise de Montespan will live on at court, the allegations about her all silenced. Were any of them true to begin with? It's hard to say, but it doesn't seem hard to believe that to keep the king's love, she was willing to go to extraordinary lengths, because she's seen firsthand what happens when you don't. But in this, no potion can save her. She will never spend time in the king's bed again. In 1683, after Louis's wife dies, he marries another woman in secret. That woman was once the governess for the Madame de Montespan's children. That potion's got a sting Athenais going down. She fades, slowly but surely, from the king's dazzling spotlight. So she turns her efforts and money to charitable causes and abbeys. And then, in 1707, she falls suddenly ill, and the emetic someone gives her only makes it worse. Lying in bed, lights on all around her. She always has been afraid of the dark. She confesses her sins to the friends all around her, including any scandals she may have caused. But the biggest scandal of all was kept from public knowledge throughout her lifetime. She may never have known how close she came to the gallows. But the most haunting part of this story is the witch hunt that unfolded with the king's permission. The numerous women who were tortured, beaten, imprisoned, and killed. Some, like Brinvilliers, might very well have been guilty of the crimes they were accused of, but others, it seems, were guilty of nothing more than trying to make the most of the Sun King's court and its penchant for potions full of ground-up toads. In this time of chaos and hysteria, the king let himself be led by fear of those who might be out to get him. As author Anne Somerset says in her book on the affair, The king had sought to rid the realm of poisoners, but in reality, it was his mind that was poisoned. Confessions under torture became evidence, the kind that women could be hung on. And many were. Thanks for listening. There are lots of ways to support the Explorers. Tell a friend about the show, leave a review wherever you listen, or send me an email telling me what you love best about the show. You can find show notes for this episode at my website, theexplorerspodcast.com, along with a transcript, some fun images, and a link or two. You can find me on Instagram at the Explorers Podcast and occasionally on Facebook and Twitter at the Explorers Pod. Until next time. Glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeye's. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh yeah, I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeye's. Let's go. Let Popeye's do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeye's flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants.